Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Mike, you're still here, and the podcast is still on. Yes. Hooray! Yes. I'm, I'm still alive, <laughs> and I'm actually very warm right now, standing yes. underneath the heater in the Sunspot rehearsal That's space. That's right. It's nice and toasty in here. It is not anything like the, what was it, negative seven degrees that you ran in last Negative weekend? seven degrees in the hypothermic that's, half marathon in Minneapolis. Man, that's unreal. That's <laughs> It really, that's it really cold. was. I, well, I thought they were going to cancel it. Because on Thursday, they sent an email and said, okay, well, because on Thursday, they didn't think it was going to be that cold. They're like, yeah, it's going to be cold on Sunday, but at least it's not going to be negative eight. Well, on Saturday, I look at the temperature and it says that it's going to be negative nine, actually, when the, when the marathon starts. And I'm like, oh, no. So I go to the Mall of America or whatever, the running store where you pick up your packet. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, hey, what did they say about, you know, is, this, is it still on? And the guys are looking at me like, Yeah. I'm like, even in that cold, the guy, and then the person at the counter was like, "Well, you're not going to see me out there." <laughs> really? I'm like, you're you're basically calling Super. me a jackass for deciding to do this race. And just for those who don't know, um, we talked about it a little last week, but Mike ran a half marathon in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in almost unbearable conditions. It was. I really had to. I had like sev- like I just a ton of layers. Um, and by the end of it, I looked like a snowman, like the, <laughs> the frost hanging off. And I didn't even notice it, but the, the ice hanging off my oh. beard and my mustache yeah. and everything. When I saw that picture, you should, you should post that on the show notes. Yeah, um, we'll put a link to it on yeah. my Instagram. Definitely. Othersidepodcast.com slash 27. You'll be able to see it because when I saw that Instagram picture, I really was like shocked. I mean, it that was, must have been freezing. Yeah, it was a good one. Well, my hands made it through. I put double layers on gloves. Um, my feet made it through fine. It just was the midsection. Yeah. <clears throat> so just got to be careful. With you. Make sure you wear an extra pair of underwear, but it's got to be a certain kind of underwear. You can't just wear cotton. You don't wear, wear your tidy whiteies because you're going to sweat in your tidy whiteies and, and then it's going it to get wet. And then it's going to get even worse. Oh. Right? Because it gets wet and it's even worse. And then it's not just the sweat that evaporates. It's your gonads. Oh, goodness. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so wow. that's just, anyway, so I just recommend wearing an extra pair of thermal kind of underwear that you can sweat in, Gore-Tex, whatever you can, just to keep keep everything, uh, keep the home fires burning, <laughs> I should say. All right. Well, congratulations to you. Thank you I am, I'm very, very impressed. I don't think, I mean, I don't even like walking in negative seven degrees. No, alone it was, it was <laughs> a good one. Run. It was a good one. And um, I got about one hour and 51 minutes, which is not what I had trained That's for. Amazing. I trained for a little faster. I was trying to get, but I was still happy even with all that gear. Um, and it was a lot of fun. I just don't think I needed to do it again. <laughs> okay, well, that, that's... I did it once, and that's quite enough. Yes, and if everybody could do that, you know, they'd be stronger people like you. But I, Sure. But I'm sorry, right. I, I don't think I'll be doing that. <laughs> that's, I'm not strong. That's person. fine. I'm scared of those Norsemen. They are... They're scary. Yes, yes. So, uh, well, that's great. Thank you. That's great. And um, while you were up there in the cold, I was down south enjoying some nice sun in Florida. Yes, the and exact opposite of what yes, I dealt with. in the weird, weird state of Florida. Yeah. Did I didn't, you take any bath salts while you were there? I didn't. Like that? And I didn't encounter anything particularly, uh, you know, 
unusual. No, okay. it was it was great. It was a wonderful time, and it was a nice little escape from the the Midwest. Good brutal cold so but i'm happy to be back in the sunspot rehearsal space here yes i am too uh talking to you today a little bit about well today we're talking with lloyd auerbach and lloyd auerbach is a a, he's been a paranormal researcher and uh a person that kind of leads the charge in academia for parapsychology very cool he wrote a book called the parapsychologist handbook esp hauntings and poltergeists and for a long time that was the like guidebook for people interested in parapsychology and we talk we'll talk about his whole education and where he was in academia and also the state of academia in the 80s when parapsychology you know when people would study this and today when it's almost disappeared i mean duke university used to have a big parapsychology laboratory well yeah i mean i remember when i very first met you i remember you telling me that that was something that you had wanted to study and that you'd considered you know going uh, to a different college we met at university of wisconsin right um, I remember you talking about that. So that's something yeah. that you've obviously. And Lloyd was the into. one who made me realize that you could get an act. And that was my backup. I talk about this in the thing cool. that, you know, was that you can, you can get, you can go on further education in parapsychology and his book is what uh, inspired me to think about that. Wonderful. So that's, we talk about that and, and he's really an interesting guy. Um, he's worked on some, uh, you know, Hollywood has c- consulted on a bunch of things and, um, yeah, I think it's something you'll enjoy, and especially the difference between the science of today, the science of 30 years ago, and a little bit of the movie's version of parapsychology, the kind of stuff you see in movies like The Haunting yeah. or Ghostbusters, and then what real-life investigations <laughs> yeah, are difference. like. And we go into tips of, if you have something happen to you, and uh, you need a investigation oh, team or okay. something, the things that How you should, you the things that you should look at for an investigation team okay. when you're trying to get people who are coming into your home. Right. You want people who are <laughs> not yeah. scammers and, or something. And so since he's been on so many teams and been on thousands of investigations, um, he goes into that. So it's 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 really something I enjoyed. And cool. l- it was a pleasure to talk to someone who I've been reading for two-thirds of my life. Wonderful. Well, that's exciting that you got to, to talk to the guy in yes, person. Yes, it is. And, um, I, I mean... I'm looking forward to, to hearing it. Well, why don't we put it on right now? Okay, but first of all, we don't like to dwell on this too much, but we have been this month because we set a goal for getting new reviews in iTunes. And why do we do that, Mike? We do that because it helps spread the word. And when people see good reviews of the podcast, they want to download it. And yeah. we want people to download this podcast and we want to get the message out to more and more people. Definitely. Like you. And we want more people involved in our, our little community here. So the more the merrier, as they say. Hey, I do um, agree with that. So we set a goal in February of, of getting four new reviews in iTunes. Mm-hmm. And I have good news, Mike. What's what's we that have, news? We have three new five-star reviews. Oh, really? Okay, so three new five-star reviews. So we just need one more to get, meet our goal. Only one more. And oh, God, that's all you got to do is one more? And But there's only like three days left in February. So okay. it's going to be tight. So we got to see... Um, and we are, we will be doing songs for each of the new reviews. So thank you, thank you so much mm-hmm. to those of you who left the new reviews, and and just stay tuned because you're each going to get your own special little song made out yes. of your review. Thank you very but much. But if if one more person would would feel so obliged as to <laughs> right, the next person leaves a review, you're going to be immortalized in song. That's right. And isn't I mean that's the kind of legacy that you can leave your children because most people don't get songs written about them, and that could be you. You could have a song written about you. You, you could even have some kind of, really, you could even have some vulgar iTunes name, oh. you know, 
like no. knocked up 49 oh or something gosh, like that. No, you know, it's just, not. you know, something like that. Yeah. And we will sing about you. So if you want to, what you want us to sing something stupid, then have a stupid <laughs> iTunes name and we'll do it. You want us to sing something like leave it in your review, leave it in your no, five no, no, star no. review. <laughs> I know, but we'll do it. I'm just trying to give an extra yes. reason. Yes. And if you can make your review rhyme, that would be even better because it makes life easier. <laughs> it makes the song them. invention much, much, much better. But anyway, so we're done. We kept it quick, right? Not too long. I'd say. Thanks so much to you guys for listening. It's been awesome getting mm-hmm. getting some new people into the fold. And um, please don't hesitate to send us a, a tweet. Yes, at Other Side Talk is our Twitter. Yes. And then you can reach me directly at Sunspot Mike and reach Wendy at... Sunspot Wendy. So it's not too hard to find us on, on the old twits. Yes. So let's talk to Lloyd. All right, everybody today... Um, this is a special treat for me because um, I've been reading this guy's work uh, for what seems to be my entire life. I picked up a copy of uh, his seminal, the, the Parapsychologist's Handbook, ESP, Hauntings, and Poltergeist, back in maybe 1993 when I was on a family trip. And uh, I carried that book with me for the next couple of years. And I just, it really was a fascinating thing. So I wanted. Uh, we're really excited to welcome uh, Lloyd Auerbach to the show. How are you doing today? Very good, thanks, Mike. And um, so you're you're based in California, right? Right outside of San Francisco. All right, which seems that seems to be the perfect place uh, for <laughs> paranormal activity. Um, so, you know, what got you into this uh, a little bit in the first place? Let's go back into some of your history before we, we talk about the things you've been doing and, and the things you're up to right now. Well, I, I've been interested in the subject since I was a little kid and partly because of, uh, of pop culture. In fact, it was TV shows and comic books okay. that got me interested in this. And in fact, it was reading the word parapsychology and, and hearing hearing it discussed a little bit on the TV show Dark Shadows that ah. uh, sent sent this little science geek to the library looking for books on the subject and finding out that there was in fact a science looking at people's psychic abilities. So it's, it's been a long time. Absolutely. And so when you started um, getting into it now, uh, looking at your biography, you attended Northwestern. I attended Northwestern uh, originally in astrophysics, believe it or not. Okay. Um, and the head of the department was actually Jalen Hynek, who was the late, you know, the uh, UFO expert. Oh, absolutely! I just we just had an interview with a guy who's doing. He's working on the the official or the most authoritative Hynek bio right now. So we had a oh, long good. time. So you you study got to study under him a little bit. Well, that and I actually volunteered at the Center for UFO Studies, which was in his home in uh, Evanston, Illinois, at the time that oh, first year. That's awesome. Yeah, he was a great guy. He was a really great guy. But I, I ended up switching to anthropo- cultural anthropology, which fit me much better um, in a num- for a number of reasons. And I was very fortunate first to be assigned uh, an anthropologist uh, named Christopher Bohm, who was, um, as it happens, was interested in parapsychology. I, I walked in his office and okay. there's like the journal of parapsychology on his shelves. So it was uh, that was pure, pure chance. And it was... Uh, a great place to be. There were a number of professors there very interested in supernatural, uh, sorcery, witchcraft, folklore beliefs around the world, and then it all connected directly to parapsychology. And while there at Northwestern, I attended a six-week uh, mini-series of lectures at Mundelein College in Chicago, which was hosted by John B. Saha and Brenda Dunn. 
And during that session, I found out, this is my senior year, I, okay. I found out about JFK University's brand new J, uh, graduate program in parapsychology. Oh, and and I remember when I when I found out about there was a psych, there, there was a psychology pro, a parapsychology program somewhere in the country. I found it out from your book, and that was always uh, I always wanted to work in entertainment and make art and be a musician and stuff like that. But that was all, like you know how people they always say to a musician you have to have a backup plan, right? That was my backup plan. Huh. <laughs> was like was like oh yeah well there's this place called JFK University and they have this program and like that's what what would be cooler than that yeah unfortunately the program when you know when you picked up my book in 93 the program had already ended no uh, breaks and, and, yeah. and like maybe it was like five or six years ago i started to look it up and um because been a musician for a long time and worked for different companies mm-hmm. and and um played a lot of places but then i was like well maybe i should start looking into that parapsychology thing and that was the first thing i looked up i'd been holding on to it like somebody holds on to this legend you know and then i'm like ah it's over yeah unfortunately we were we had some outside funding which uh, fell apart because the economy at the time hit the company that was actually funding us really hard and we also had a university president who came in for a total of about three years he uh he tried to get rid of some programs that, that uh, were less than mainstream, including ours, and he uh, he didn't last very long because that was not an overt agenda that was that was found out. Was, there's a number of reasons why he left, but sure. um, it boiled down to if he wasn't there at the same time we were losing our funding, we probably would have survived. But the two things together, you know, meant that the program had a just dropped out. It was it was the perfect storm and unfortunate for wannabe parapsychology yeah. scholars like myself. Um, yeah, yeah, and we've tried Atlantic University, where I'm on faculty um, uh, teaching online courses. Tried to um, get a parapsychology, a new master's program through the accrediting body for online uh, education. Okay. And unfor- and unfortunately, uh, first they came back and said, "We don't want to see a proposal. We want you guys to petition us for a proposal." And then, which was odd to begin with, and right. then they just basically, after, um, we're not even sure how well they considered it, uh, we had a, a, a really amazing petition, which included letters from Nobel laureates and scientists and scholars and other people who supported the idea of a, a program. Um, they pretty much turned it down saying it was too controversial. Oh, well, and, and you know, that's, I, I feel that now the... Um the fight between or, you know, the, the conflict between, you know, science, atheism, and more, you know, parapsychology, philosophical studies, things like that. I think there's a, there's a further gulf between them that there's, there's been at any other time. And when I think mm-hmm. about like the, the 60s and 70s, it seemed that's when more of it was getting together, like that they were saying like, okay, there's something to this in the science part of it. And yeah. let's see if we can go down that hole. Yeah, that's, I think, um, probably until pro- maybe the late 80s, early 90s, uh, academia was not so closed off. I mean, these days, if you mention, if you're, you're in academia and you mention that you have an interest in the subject, unless you immediately say, to debunk it, you know, unless you immediately say you're going after those guys. <laughs> right. 
Um, you're going to be derided. People will say that we'll start um, considering the rest of your work potentially woo woo. Uh, it, people have lost their jobs. You know, people have uh, not gotten tenure because of that. And people have been uninvited to sign up to conferences, even though they've been uh, every other bit of their work is amazing. Uh, I know of one Nobel Prize winning physicist who was uninvited to a physics conference because, and the reason was cited, was his interest in, in the paranormal. And uh, even though they had nothing to do with his work <laughs> directly. So there's this academic prejudice and so much of it has been fomented by the organized skeptics. Right. And and their continual, um, a lot of them, you know, they claim to be skeptics. They're actually true disbelievers as much as some of the fundamentalist religious folks are true believers. They just... Uh, the very fact that they call this stuff woo-woo without even considering that people might actually have an experience that's maybe not paranormal but could be real in another way absolutely is crazily unscientific. I mean, the whole thing is unscientific, actually. Well, it, it's like it's like saying that everything that Isaac Newton did in physics is like, oh, forget that because he was also in alchemy. Right. Exactly. That's exactly right. Uh, you know, it's and what you know whether we're right about what we're studying, in other words, what's going on in people's experiences or not, it is unscientific to say that, to just write those experiences off without actually studying them. Because thousands, you know, tens of thousands of people, if not hundreds of thousands in the United States have experiences, if not millions, every year. And over this last century, we have millions of experiences on record. And there's something going on. And this doesn't all have one single explanation. You know, they like to say it's mass hypnosis. They like to say... Oh, these people are mentally ill, you know, right. There's just not one. You have to study these experiences to find out what's going on and to say that they're not worthy of study uh, or to disagree with the approach means that that for the latter, if you disagree with the approach, you really should then have your own approach <laughs> and study them. Well, right. Because saying that, it, just saying it's woo woo, that, that's like taking someone's experiences and just completely dismissing it offhand. Like just saying, well, right. yeah, something happened to you, but since it does not fit into my paradigm of what I believe the world is, um, I, I don't, I don't even want to look at it. You know, it's, it's like saying it's uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, right? They have the bug bladder beast of trawl where it says if mm -hmm. you put the towel over your head and say, if, if you can't see it, it can't see you. Uh, that's what they said. The creature was so dumb. That's what it believed. And right, right. the exact same thing that, you know, like we're not even going to pay attention to it. We're going to wear the blinders. And I do think that that gulf, um, it, it does disconcert me. And, you know, I really thought that uh, when I read your book, um, it, it really was like a, a completely different perspective for me because it finally was somebody taking a look at studying these phenomena with a scientific eye versus uh, not, not that there's anything wrong with the spirit, you know, from a spiritual perspective or, you know, people have a religious perspective, but it was looking at it from, okay, let's try to figure it out in a way that's repeatable, that we can document, you know, let's investigate this um, in a way that uh, has some, you know, science to it, has some kind of a way where we, we can try to uh, explain this um, with at least the limits of our knowledge. And I appreciated that, and I, I think that's something that we're, you know, really missing right now. Because the idea, when you talk about there was, oh yeah, so there was a parapsychology program at JFK University, and and this is in the '70s when you went over there for the first time. 
Actually, the program started in 77. I got there in 1979. Okay. And then uh, I think uh, we the program was officially ended in 86, 87. And then I think we graduated our, our last student in 89. Although um, after the program stopped, the degree, the title of the degree changed to something else. It's like so. higher consciousness studies or something like it that. It was uh, uh, interdisciplinary consciousness studies is what it was at the time. And um, But just the idea that that existed in the first place, I think, would blow a lot of people's minds today. So, so you went over there um, in the late 1970s. And when you got there, I mean, what was it like? What was the life of a parapsychologist like? At the university in the you know in the early eighties late seventies. Well, I, I mean, we were um, the program. I think I don't know. There were maybe twenty up to twenty people, fifteen to twenty people in the program in, in the program at that time. Okay. I think the most we ever had was about thirty. Um, I was there for two years. I was there for two years. Not everybody finished in two years, but I, myself and one or, one or two other students did finish in the in the two year program, and it was. Different than my Northwestern experience because, uh, you know, grad school is different, number one. And, right. and JFK primarily has catered to um, adults already um, out of school. So even today, our, probably our average age at the university is 36, 37. So I, uh, these were all classes in the late afternoon and evening. And that was a different thing for me, you know. Um, but uh, we, we did a lot, of, a lot of work. We actually had a lab. We had a, a small building where we... Uh, did some ESP and psychokinesis experiments. Okay. Uh, one of the first classes I was uh, I was taking was an investig field investigations class, and so I started the first case I ever did was October of '79. So it was really only about three weeks into my program that I even went out ghost hunting at that point, and we had we got together a lot. I mean, this was a time when. Uh, most of us were, a lot of us were younger, and so we'd, we'd stay up till midnight after a class was over at 10.15. We'd go out for drinks and, and chat about the course, and sometimes John Palmer, who was our main professor and department chair, would be with us, as would some of the other instructors who would be brought in from other places. Well, I guess... Yeah. That, I mean, were, did you grow up in California originally and then come out to the Midwest, to Northwestern, or where did you grow up originally? No. I grew up outside of New York City. Okay. Um, and... White Plains, New York. So, uh, you know, when you first got to uh, California, was it a little bit of a, was it a little bit of a culture shock? The you know the San Francisco, the Bay Area, and stuff like that, coming from the East Coast and then the Midwest for a few years. It was a little bit. I, I've been to L.A. a bunch of times, and uh, San Francisco was was a bit of a culture shock. It was actually kind of a more geography shock, you know, coming from a place where there's tons of trees and greenery in the summertime, and mm -hmm. coming out here and in uh, late August, early September, and the, the hills are totally brown and there are very few trees. It was a little <laughs> bit different. Um, and then, of course, I had to get used to the food. You know, coming from New York, uh, I think the thing that I probably moaned about the most, two things I moaned about the most were um, the lack of del good delis and the lack of good pizza. Okay. <laughs> but it, but, but did, it wasn't, wasn't too hard otherwise. Did the lack of winter make up for that? Uh, you know, the one of the, it's funny, the lack of winter certainly did make up for it. And in fact, <laughs> when I finished in two years, I went back to New York, I was there for a couple more years and that's went through a couple more winters and decided, you know, I think I'm going back to California. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I, it's, it's, it's uh, a low of negative three and I'm up in Minneapolis today. Oh, so. uh, I'm so sorry. I don't even want to tell you how nice it is here. <laughs> yeah, no, I bet it's great. I bet it's great. Um, 
So, I mean, you guys were in classes, said three weeks in, and you're already, you know, ghost hunting and getting into it. And, you know, that's that's a really, um, you know, that sounds like a really exciting and interesting, you know, field of study, I think, to a lot of people listening. Just the idea of like, what, I could have gone to college for that? Um, so... But so you go through, you take the courses. When did you decide to become like a teacher, an academic, and to stay on with the university? Well, um, a couple things happened in between, actually. I did come back to New York for two years. Um, okay. I had I had intended to, uh, originally intended to be a researcher, laboratory researcher. And frankly, um, I decided that it was going to be too, I was not detail-oriented oriented enough with the statistical analysis and such. Okay. It wasn't interesting. The field work, and, and maybe it was the anthropology work I, I had done in college, but the field work was much more interesting to me. At the same time, um, because I grew up in and around uh, a TV family, my, my father worked for NBC, uh, my uncle uh, Larry, who just passed away, was a director of TV soap operas. Uh, my mother's brother was was retired. Was a radio newscaster in New York for WMCA Radio. Okay, and you know, and I had other family that have been since then have gotten into television and and film and such. So growing up in that era and that in that area, especially around NBC in New York, I had a lot of um, media savvy in terms of connecting. So when I got back to New York, I started teaching adult ed courses at a few of the local place spots. Um, and then went down to the American Society for Psychical Research in New York City. The ASPR. A, the ASPR had an active, at that time they had active research going on. They had an education department. They were fairly active. And uh, I thought, I had some ideas on how to promote the ASPR within the TV, within TV news and radio news. And I'd gotten all that from working with my father and my, my uncle and such. And I, the day that I got there, as it turned out, they had hired, recently hired a new executive director and the head of the education department said, let me have you go up and talk to him because he holds the purse strings and he might be interested. Mm -hmm. And I did. And I presented him with my ideas and I had some written down and such. And he looked at me and he said, um, you want a job? <laughs> okay. And they gave me a halftime job uh, as the public information and media consultant to the education department. So I actually ended up work, working halftime there uh, in connecting with radio and TV and print in the New York area. Uh, and we set up a whole bunch of different things. And uh, I also ended up help, helping out some of the research and did field investigations for Dr. Osis uh, up in Westchester County, which made a lot of sense given the geography. That's where I was living. Right. So it was very fortuitous. Uh, and the JFK job came up towards the, uh, probably spring of 83. I was frankly having some frustration. We were all were in the education department with some projects that I had proposed that literally would cost almost nothing. Um, I want, we wanted to do a documentary about the ASPR and its history and current research. And I had, you know, free camera, free editing, everything was free except for the tape stock because of my father and one of my brothers and, and a couple of other folks who were, I even had a, a narrator from NBC radio. Wow. Okay. And, and the, the board, let's just put it this way. They frustrated with the budget was a hundred dollars. And they didn't want to, uh, even if it was free, they didn't want to go ahead until they saw an actual script. And when you're doing a documentary, it's kind of hard. You can have an outline. We had the outline. But they actually wanted to know what questions and what responses everybody would have. And I, and I said, how do you do that without doing the interviews? <laughs> <laughs> right. 
So at the time, I was talking to one of my um, my fellow graduates at JFK, who was now the head of the department uh, in, at JFK, and she said, "Well, we have some grant we have some grant money from the company that's funding us, and we're trying to figure out what to do with it. So would you want to come out here and do what you're doing for J for the ASPR, but do it for us?" Okay. And so I so the job came up. I I just said goodbye to the ASPR and goodbye to New York, and I came back out to California and stayed. Well, I think that that's a great lesson. Um, because, you know, people will say, you know, like, well, you know, do you know anybody who actually has a career in, you know, doing paranormal stuff and investigations or anything like that? And a lot of people, like, like you were just talking about, like you, I mean, you went to school for parapsychology. You were one of the few lucky ones who was able to get an accredited degree in, in parapsychology. And yet, you know, your entree into getting into the industry was really having some ideas, being proactive, you know, going to the headquarters and showing up and saying like, yeah. hey, man, I've got a bunch of ideas for you. What do you think? And then they see a guy that's a go-getter uh, that's connected and that's got some education and isn't a loony. You know, I don't mean to insult. I mean, you've met a lot of people. Oh, I've met a lot of loonies. <laughs> right. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. So when you yeah. see somebody who's science-minded, got a great idea and, uh, you know, is willing to work. I mean, that's that's probably pretty exciting to a lot of people who are involved in this because sometimes, um, you know, you'll talk to somebody for a while and be like, okay, this guy really gets it. And then they'll say something that's so completely far off the deep end. You're like, okay, now, like, hold on a second. You, you lost me there. So I think that's, that's, a real exci- that's really exciting. That's just a good lesson in how you get into things like this is that uh, you work hard, you bring ideas, and then you go to where the action is. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'd like to be able to go where the money is because that really <laughs> hasn't happened in our field. <laughs> right. But um, but there's an, there's inherent value uh, in it. Oh, yeah. And so someti- yeah. sometimes that's, that's, the, uh, that's the compensation. But so, you know, is when I uh, – reading your biography and stuff like that, one of the things you talk about – and this is shortly probably after you joined uh, the JFK staff – is that you were a consultant on a television show that I thought I was the only person in the world that remembered. Like maybe me and my sister. Uh, my si- I'm sorry, my sister and I are the only people in the world who remember the show Shadow Chasers. Yeah, you know, um, that was really... I love I, I loved that show. I love <laughs> yeah, that show. Me too. Uh, I, have, I, I, have, I have some, you know, I have video. I have all the episodes, actually. And isn't Dennis Dugan from that show now? He's like a... He's like a major director. Like he directed a bunch of Adam yes, Sandler's film. He's doing great. Yeah. yeah, he is. He is. And, you know, um, that was a fun show. I thought the pilot was really, really well done. And I was so happy to, to have heard from Ken Johnson. They flew me down to L.A. and spent a day with the, the writing staff kind of going over things. And, um, you know, I'm kind of an uncredited consultant to that. But it, it was it was definitely a great experience. And. Um, I love doing that kind of thing. In fact, I, you know, I do offer script consulting services these days, although I haven't had a lot of takers over the years, but we're trying to get, get me back into Hollywood and film and uh, television for the scripted stuff, not the reality shows anymore. I kind of frankly have given up on them. Um, well, we should, we should talk about that in a minute. I mean, and so for, yeah. for the people listening, um, okay. And you probably, the people listening probably haven't seen Shadow Chasers, but this was a show on ABC and maybe there was 
I mean, this, it came out, like it must have been in development before Ghostbusters, but it came out afterwards. And it was de- um, developed by Ken Johnson, who did also did V, that's probably his most famous sci-fi show. And The show. Incredible Hulk. Oh, that's right. Hulk. Yeah, and The Incredible and he, was all, and he was also involved in The Six Million Dollar Man. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. He's about that. Well, yeah. So this obviously he's got a great sci-fi pedigree, and um, so this was just a show about, and it it was it was just based on like a couple of guys working together, and they would just they would investigate paranormal phenomena, and um, I just I I thought it was a fascinating show. It was funny. It was clever, and it, what I mean, I think it lasted like six episodes. I think, it, yeah, I, th- I have to look, but I think it's more like eight or nine. What happened was, though, that was really um, important to know is that for whatever reason, um, ABC didn't give it a shot. They kept moving it around. So when you have a show and it's not at the same time every week uh, and people and the promos don't really pr- give you warning, um, at least at that time, because people didn't have the guides that they could actually search. There was not the kind of cable guides on your DVR. Right. Yeah. So it, you know, a show, if they want to kill a show, that's the easiest thing to do is just move it around. So nobody knows where it is. That's exactly right. Yeah. So something like that happened. I'm, you know, one of the things I should mention, I think the promos, yeah, there are promos for it actually on YouTube. Okay. We'll, we'll have to link to that. I I have to watch them because I haven't, I mean, I haven't seen an episode in 29 years, you know what I mean? But I just, it was something I get excited. Like I would go in and I would, I was only one in my family and may, I think I was eight years old at the time. I was the only one in the family that could set the VCR. Yeah. So I made sure that I set the VCR. I found out whatever time it was on and then I would set it and we have them all on tape somewhere at my parents' parents' house in Milwaukee. So that, no, it's super fun. And so you got involved in that and they, they obviously were trying to find some kind of uh, a little more quote-unquote realistic scientific basis, but probably something connected to, um, you know, more like what real-life paranormal investigators did. And was, was that your first time that you kind of helped out consult on that? Uh, in that? At that level, I had been called by various producers over the years, even since from the time that we were at, I was at the ASPR in 82. Um, I had worked on some news programs and some documentary production type things, and uh, I, there have been a couple of shows that had called, you know, I talked to writers for a couple of films, for example, and uh, for a couple of TV shows. But that was the probably the most in-depth discussion. Um, you know, one of the things I liked about Ch- Shadow Chasers is that they it was basically an anthropologist who sent these two guys, this one guy out. He was another uh, Trevor Eve played uh, an anthropologist in the same department. And Dennis Dugan played, if you recall, a tabloid reporter who yes. latched himself on, who latched himself onto to uh, Trevor Eden, uh, his character. And so you have the skeptic, who's the anthropologist, and you have the, the true believer, who's the, the, the tabloid guy. And there's a little humor there. And I thought that was a, you know, the rapport was good and some good humor and it was handled pretty well. Yeah, it was always, it was definitely great. And, and um it's all all the people I know who remember it always remember it fondly, but yeah, yeah. What, so when you get t like scripted consulting and, and you know when we talk about the intersection between pop culture and paranormal and and real paranormal research and and the real life people that do these investigations like yourself, um, what are like the top three things that they always get wrong, you know? Or that that you're like you see this and and somebody says look at a script or or something like that and you look at it and you're immediately like well, that has no basis in reality. Is, are there any common themes that that you've noticed? Well, I think you know you can you can find 
different themes. Uh, certainly, um, the whole idea that ghosts uh, are evil, inherently evil or destructive, that is incredibly contrary to real experience that people have had. Um, and an interesting thing, uh, thing is that most of the dramas and comedies get it more right. I wouldn't say Ghostbusters got a lot of that right, but most of the typical comedies with ghosts in them and the dramas going back to the very beginning of film uh, have pretty much gotten it right, or at least closer to right. The ghosts end up being uh, human, you know, very human. Okay. And often, often amazingly more human than sometimes the living people. So that definitely happens right. Um, one of the things, you know, of course, Ghostbusters is a serious exaggeration, but Dan Aykroyd did some some real research. He was actually at the, the library of the ASPR uh, doing research. His grandfather was a member of the Canadian uh, group of the uh, the Society of Psychical Research and did oh, investigations. Right. And his dad actually more recently wrote a book about the history of ghosts, which is a pretty good book. Uh, so Dan actually did research. Um, so there's some things in the movie that certainly are based in reality, and there's kind of an attitude that's in there. Uh, the equipment, of course, was uh, the tech that was used was totally fabricated, and that's something that we've, we've kind of seen going back as far as the movie Poltergeist. Uh, and then, uh, and that's another aspect that, uh, I, I think that people just tend to exaggerate and this is perfectly okay. It's okay to exaggerate abilities. That's okay. what science fiction. That's what is science fiction and fantasy are all about is that you take an ability and you exaggerate it. You know, that's what the superhero comic books are about. Absolutely. You don't have anybody who can actually do this, but you exaggerate that and you create a new situation. Uh, but you have to be aware that you are in fact exaggerating. Uh, and putting that kind of like shadowy, evil thing, spin on things, sometimes is a great for dramatic effect. Uh, one of the best ghost movies is actually the movie Ghost. And right. I found out, after, found out after the movie had been uh, had was out for a while that the screenwriter actually had used my first book, that ESP Hauntings and Poltergeist, and one of the books by D. Scott Rogo, who was one of my teachers and a colleague, um, had used those two books as a lot of the basis for the behavior of the main character and a lot of the activity and things like that. But the one piece of dramatic license that was taken in that movie was the shadowy figures taking the bad guy ghosts down into the ground. Yeah. I mean, did. that was terrifying, you know, when they, yeah. they ripped Tony Goldwyn down and drag him to hell. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that, that's never been reported. Okay, so, good. Um, it's, and that's a, it was a really good dramatic license because you wanted to show that some, that there was a consequence for being bad. And I think that that's perfectly okay. So when people say they want to, you know, want me to look at a script or talk about what's going on, I'm not going to nitpick it and say it all has to be exactly real. We want to start with the real thing and exaggerate it properly. Sometimes it goes haywire. Um, if you remember the movie, the entity with Barbara Hershey, absolutely. Uh, but based on a novel by uh, Frank DeFolita, which was based on an actual case that two of my buddies, Barry Taff and Kerry Gaynor, did. Oh. It was a poltergeist case. And a poltergeist involves a living person being the source and cause of all the activity. It was a very extreme poltergeist case where there was a lot of activity being witnessed by a lot of people, including some light effects that appeared in the air. Uh, but there was no outside entity. The entity was actually from within herself. And, and in the novel... In the novel, I think, uh, you know, I talked to Frank DiFolita actually before the movie came out and after. Um, he exaggerated a lot because he was writing, you know, he was fictionalizing it. Right. And, and then the movie took it like way to the sex extreme, the sexual extreme, and then put in something 
that people to this day have asked me, did that ever happen? And that was trying to freeze the ghost, the entity in a mock-up of the woman's house that was built in a, a gymnasium at UCLA to freeze it with liquid helium. Right. And, it, you know, talk about not being real. There is no university on the planet that would potentially sacrifice athletic equipment or a location <laughs> like a gym. <laughs> right, for some paranormal investigation. Well, and then it's not even the paranormal investigation. That would have been one thing. But freezing something, using liquid helium, which could seriously damage everything, not to mention the legal department of every university would never let that be used where the human being could be in the path of that. So that's, right. that's, you know, that's incredibly negligent. So from a, from a reality standpoint, that was about that was actually more unrealistic than the the uh, the shadow ghost taking Tony Goldman down into the ground. <laughs> well, you, you know, I think um, you mentioned poltergeist, and I think this is something we should kind of explain right away because I find that people not really understanding what a poltergeist is as compared to. Um, what we would think of as a, you know, a ghost, uh, you know, a, right. or, you know, or something like that. So can you explain what a poltergeist is uh, for me, please? Sure. It's a label on a situation where physical, physical things are happening. So things are moving, breaking, shaking. Uh, these days we get a lot of reports of electronics uh, going kind of haywire. Uh, we might have wrappings in the walls, uh, but they're all purely physical events. And with the most rare exception, no ghosts are actually seen or heard or felt. Um, probably the best pop culture reference for people is not the movie Poltergeist, mm -hmm. but rather the movie Carrie is oh. a much better. So think think of a Poltergeist as an unconsciously driven telekinetic temper tantrum. It's <laughs> a stress relief valve is what it really is. And so when we investigate, we're playing detective as much as anything else in those cases. It's actually a little bit more interesting. Poltergeist cases, to me, um, much as I'm really interested in, and excited by some ghost cases, real cases of apparitions, at least in the poltergeist case, I get to play – I really get to play detective. And that's a really cool thing. That's – I mean that sounds like – I think that um, – you know, you, you think that poltergeist cases, though, a lot of times would lead to kind of – Maybe rough homes, damaged homes. Have you found that kind of thing? Because you always have the vision of a poltergeist as like a troubled teenage girl from a broken home or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that, that's kind of – that's because of Stephen King. Okay. <laughs> so, Thank you, Stephen King. He, he, he more or less crystallized the, the stereotype. It's uh, about 60% of the poltergeist agents are adolescents, meaning from about age 11 or 12 to early 20s. So, of course, teenage years are in there. And the percentage of female to male – kind of follows the population so it's okay. not necessarily that um and i've had poltergeist agents as old as 80 so um we we rarely have that kind of destruction certainly you know nothing close to what you see in the movies and we do occasionally get like bursts of water i did have a case here in the bay area where there were water bursts that were being witnessed and you know it's almost like somebody was manifesting um, blobs or water balloons right below the ceiling and they would splatter in every direction. So they actually had d damage on their ceilings that um, the insurance company did pay off on, but then oh, put wow. an exclusion. They, the insurance company then put an exclusion in the policy going forward for against poltergeist activity. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, so no acts of God and no poltergeist, no then. poltergeist. That's right. No ghosts or poltergeist. Um, and, uh, 
you know, we do have things breaking. There there have been people who have reported uh, in some of these poltergeist cases, cases that their hard drives fry, get fried. So there is some that kind of damage, but it's not the kind of things flying around. Uh, knickknacks get broken sometimes, but not, you know, major things happening. Well, um, you know, and I feel I got, I've got a million questions I want to ask you, but I think I, I need to direct this towards I, um, investigations, I think, because I think that's where we're moving in the discussion. And when it comes to invest and you're, I mean, how many investigations do you think you've been on? You know, I, unlike a lot of the ghost hunting groups, I, I, we don't keep tab, keep keep a number, but I it's over a thousand at this point. Um, in my this, and that's over thirty years, of course. Right, it's um, not like in a couple of weeks. Yeah, and and some of them are very very brief, and and if I were to include, um, you know, just kind of pre investigation phone calls where I can we can figure things out, it's a lot more than that. But I, you know, and I say it's over a thousand, and it's it may just be you know six or seven hundred. I, I right. really I don't really know. No, but it's I mean that's been you know the, the uh, in, investigating uh, strange phenomena. I mean, has been your life, and you know what? What do you think is especially with the infusion of all of the haunted adventures, TV shows, and things like that? I mean, what do you think is the difference? Um, between investigating stuff in the 1980s and investigating stuff in the 2010s, like besides equipment and cell phones and cameras and orbs appearing on every single photo in the universe, um, what, what are the biggest differences you think in, that you've seen over the past 30 years? Well, for us, for those of us who are trained in parapsychology and the, or the people I train myself that I, in my courses, um, there's not a whole lot of difference. I mean, we know a little bit more about ESP. We know a little bit more about psychokinesis. We certainly have um, access to more mediums and psychics around the country because at least uh, there have been organizations such as the Forever Family Foundation, which I'm uh, – it's a foundation I'm president of that kind of helps support and bring out the research work of mediums. And uh, so we get a little bit more volunteer uh, work from those folks. Okay. Um, you know, the technology has changed, obviously, uh, because it's become affordable, but really the technology that we all use and even the ghost hunters are using is really designed. Most of it is environmental sensing, and that's what we're trying to figure out. So we actually know a little bit more about the environment and how it impacts people's experiences. Um, and what's, we an, ex- still what's an example of, of that? Well, um, in the early 80s, uh, late 70s, early 80s, Michael Persinger, Stanley Krippner, and others were publishing papers on how the Earth's magnetic field seems to be to correlate to certain types of psychic experiences. Highs in the magnetic field of the Earth locally seem to connect to uh, precognitive and psychokinetic and ghostly experiences, and lows tend to connect to more clairvoyant experiences and even things like... Um, you know, telepathic experiences and a few others. Wow. So, so I, I was thinking like just like the environment of the room, like, you know. Well, I, well I, I'm getting there. I'm okay, getting there. Sorry, so, sorry. So this was – this actually led to some folks seeing whether or not like myself, myself, Andrew Nichols and a couple others back in the early 80s was kind of wondering and separately wondering whether there were generally fields in the area, the local area um, – would be higher or lower during these investigations, you know, when people actually not during the investigation, but when people had their experiences Mm -hmm. in the homes we were investigating. And fortunately um, at the beginning of that, which is probably the mid eighties, we did have access to the first of the 
relatively lower cost magnetic field detectors, the portable ones like the tri-field meter. And the thing is that that wasn't the same as the Earth's magnetic field. And there were geomagnetometers, but they were still pretty expensive. They've gotten a lot cheaper. They're still over 600 bucks typically. Oh, wow. But at least we could, we could bring those in. And we did find, for example, a correlation, not necessarily a cause and effect, but a correlation between where in the home people said that they were experiencing a haunting or a residual haunting. So in other words, a repeating event, not, not necessarily an actual ghost. Okay. But where they'd experienced that in the home. And an unexplained magnetic field that seemed to be connected to the location and actually got higher at the times that the people were having the experience. So it either could be that the field itself was a causal factor affecting them, or it could be that the magnetic field was caused by the same thing that's causing them to have their experiences. So there's a connection there. And there hasn't been enough, uh, really, there's, there's almost no fun to really scientifically look at that question in, in the way we'd like uh, but there, are, it's an interesting question, and that's one of the things we also, you know, have been using temperature sensors, thermometers for for decades. I mean, right. well before digital thermometers, and it's pretty clear that cold, here's another one that's basically been popped up by pop, prop culture, and that cold spots, not real most of the time, um, not really a temperature change, and this goes back to a theatrical device in film where to build suspense, you know, you play with music, but you could also, if you have somebody walking into a room and you want to suggest that there's a ghost or something supernatural about to happen, what could be better than this creepy music and the person, suddenly their breath starts being visible? Right. No, that's always like, oh my God, you know there's something going on. Of course. And that's not, (laughs) I mean, and people have reported feeling cold, but that's not the same as their being cold in the temperature change. There's So temperature change is something that's very rare. Um, and we, we really come to understand that that's not the case. So over the years, you know, what's different between now and the 80s uh, is that we've got some things that we're playing with the in, for the environment. But otherwise, in general, it stays pretty much the same unless you're kind of looking at the ways that the majority of the, the ghost hunting slash paranormal community does investigations, which is based on those reality TV shows who get it wrong, who've gotten it wrong and have set up, <laughs> have created a methodology that doesn't even work. And uh, one of the biggest differences for me these days is too many people sending me photographs and such saying, can you tell me what this is? And that didn't used to happen. And that's partly because now there's email. So, right. It's easier. You know, that, that they don't have yeah. to make a print and then send it in the mail. Which we did get at JFK. We got those every once in a while. Not as many as we got we get today. Everybody can take, you know, everybody's got their camera with them today. Well, um, you know, when you talk about the obviously the changing technology, people's changing attitudes and stuff. Um, have you seen from, from the people that are, you know, calling in or asking for an investigation or having weird stuff happen to them, have their attitudes changed in what they expect an investigation today from, uh, 30 years ago, because on these quote unquote reality television programs, there always seems to be, I mean, something exciting happens in every episode. Right, right. Well, there is an expectation uh, on the part of the folks. They, they, some people call um, hoping that we're not going to do what they do on TV, which is kicking the family out overnight and then the next morning showing them the evidence and then leaving. You know, <laughs> most, people, most people actually want help. And I've actually gotten calls. Um, we don't get it as many calls these days because there are all these other ghost hunting groups. I sometimes get the, um, the post-investigation call from someone who said, we had a local ghost hunting group here. Can you come out? All they did is tell us that there's a ghost here and play some EVP for us. They haven't helped us at all. 
So, you know, they got their big reveal, but that's all they got. And that doesn't help anybody, especially when a lot of these ghost hunting groups don't even look for normal explanations. And consequently, we go in and, uh, and find out that there actually is a normal explanation for these things. Right. Including what the people, the, ev- the so-called evidence that they actually got. So that's a, that's a difference. We also get an expectation because of the TV shows uh, that about their phenomena. There, is a, there are conclusions people have already reached about what's going on in their home. They assume it's bad, uh, even more than they used to. And they they use the word demonic and malevolent a lot more because of the TV shows. Okay, so it's it's the well, it's like the people that watch, uh, you know, they used to do those psych, um, psychology studies, and and the people who watch more television, with m- most televisions about crime, believe that uh, the crime rate's like four times higher than it really is. Right, right, exactly. And, and that cops are cops are regularly shooting people or have shootouts with, with, with crooks all the right. time. No, it happens. It's Hunter, it's real life. Yeah. Um, so, you know, um, one thing about investigation. So as he's been on a thousand investigations, obviously you had a team backed up by, you know, people who've studied this stuff, taken courses, uh, have safeguards, that kind of thing. What would be the first couple steps if um, – you were just a, a regular, you know, non-parapsychologist person, but let's say, and then you had something happen in your home or you had some weirdness happen with one of your kids and things like that. What are the steps you'd go through in order to make sure you hired a good investigative team versus um, a bunch of loonies? Well, first of all, I would ask them uh, what kind of training they've had or education and and there are some by the way there's some very good investigators that I that I we work with or I've worked with and gotten to know over the years who trained they trained themselves like because there was no access to anything at the time they did it and they did it by reading books on parapsychology and frankly if the ghost hunters that you talk to don't actually say I've read you know I I've done a lot of reading in parapsychology I've I've tried to follow the field uh, if they focus more on the equipment, which is often what happens, people say, well, we have all this great, you know, the scientific equipment and that's our method. Uh, then I, I think right off the bat, there's a problem. Uh, the reality is that an investigation starts with the witnesses, which on TV, we often see the witnesses being dismissed as having only anecdotal stories, right. which is true. Those all personal experiences are an, when you relate to somebody as an anecdote, that's an anecdote, but right. that's, you know, that's how social science works. Social science works off of people's stories. And in fact, if you don't talk to the witnesses as an investigator, what you're doing is investigating a rumor that you have no basis, you know, no, no backup for. Um, I find it bizarre, um, that these TV shows, you know, they'll they'll say they want to go in unbiased and they'll kick out all the witnesses, but they still have one person there who tells them their side of the story or just tells them what's been written up about the public location. That's a bias right there. You need yeah. to get the witnesses to tell you what's going on. So uh, you should be hearing from them that we want to interview everybody who's involved, including the people who have not had an experience. So if you were to call me, I say, well, you know, we need, let me, let me hear what what happened. You tell me your story, but I want you to, um, I need to talk to the other folks too. And that should be part of what you're expecting. You should also, you should ask them how they work. They should say, we want to talk to all the witnesses. They should say, we want to come on site and take a look for uh, what, what's going on. And we're going to do this by going through each of these events that you folks have reported and looking for 
non-paranormal explanations for things. Because we normally find, even in the best of the cases, and I really want to make people understand that we're not trying to debunk anything. Okay. I, don't, I don't assume that they are lying, because that's kind of what the word debunk implies. Sure. What I, what I know is that people make mistakes in their perceptions. And even the conclusions that they've reached might be incorrect. And I try to calm them down. You know, they're afraid. And I said, well, tell me what's going on. I said, really? So you've heard your name called a few times and that's a bad thing because. So, right, right. Yeah. So, so basically a good investigator should be asking you how you've reached your conclusions about what you think is going on also. Um, and they should, again, be relating it back to some basics in parapsychology. I actually have an article on my website, mindreader.com, that uh, even says, how do you know you're talking to a parapsychologist? Okay. And it's got a, it's got a list of things. Uh, and actually, it's in, it's in the book. It's in ESP Hauntings and Poltergeist, too. But it's kind of a list of things uh, that's, that at least you should be hearing from these folks a little bit. Well, we'll make sure we link to that in the show notes so people can take a look. Because I found um, – so I run the Haunted History Tour in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh-huh. And um, my sister runs the one in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And so because of that, like people are calling if they've been having experiences. Um, and it's, it's like a haunted history tour and I'm into this stuff. And I'll go to their, you know, I'll go to their house or whatever, check it out. But I'm not a – I don't have like a team or investigator. I haven't taken the courses yet or anything like that. So I think it's important to be able to direct people in the right direction if they're having uh, – you know, if they're having experiences and that, you know, you can't just look on the internet and call the first person that you see in something. No, that's right. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, one of the things we'll have them do, we usually have people do, and they, and people should start thinking about doing this right off, off the bat. If you have an experience, um, and typically people are going to suddenly look for everything else that could possibly be paranormal. <laughs> right. Uh, so if you have an experience, jot it down, but then, as you're having other experiences, jot them down too. start keeping a journal going forward, you know, try to not note down what happened before, but try to keep going forward. And when you do have an experience going forward, ask yourself, is this paranormal or could this have another explanation? I've just concluded that it's paranormal because what you want to do is separate out what is unexplained from things that actually have explanation. Okay. And I, in, in other words, I, we like to make people their own investigators or pr- make them part of the team, you might say. It empowers people, it helps them get past their fear, and it actually helps us solve the, the situation much faster. Sure, and it gets them engaged and, you know, it, yeah. it gets them closer to it. And, you know, and um, I think for people that want to be uh, investigators, and you talked about, you know, helping people become their own investigators, for the people who are interested in in, um, you know, learning more about this and, and reading a book is a good start, but, uh, you also, aren't you offering some, you're offering some classes, right? That people can take online with other students and and a forum and stuff like that, where you can kind of learn with other people as you go. Can you talk about that a little bit before we go? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right now I'm, I'm just about to hit week four of an investigations class for the Rhine Education Center, Rhine, R-H-I-N-E. It's actually the Rhine Research Center, which is the legacy of, the old Duke Parapsychology Laboratory, and uh, it's in Durham, North Carolina, but we do online courses. Uh, the I'm um, Actually, on t- next Wednesday on the 18th, we're starting a Science of ESP course, which is a fairly academic course on ESP research. 
that we're doing. And those two are online classes. We'll be repeating the field investigations course again later this year. But people can still jump in now um, if they go to rhineeducationcenter.org and, uh, or con- just contact the Rhine Center directly from their main site, which is rhine.org. And I also offer distance learning courses, which can be done pretty much any time of the year okay. at your own pace. And these are um, courses, including a ghost hunting class, which are audio-based. They are uh, recorded course uh, class lectures. So uh, I'm actually doing it live starting on February 26th, and people can call in. I'll also have students in the room with me. But we we have it already recorded. So what happens with the distance courses is people get the recordings of the class, they get some video, they get some additional audio, they get a ton of text material, and then I spend time on the phone with individual students. Uh, since this is not an online class per se, this is actually something you could listen to in your commute <laughs> when you're okay. going back and forth to work. And I've had a lot of people doing that. You know, you're in the car, you're commuting someplace, you listen to the lectures and, uh, it works really well for people. And then I add in some time so that when people are kind of midway through the, cl- through their lectures, we spend about an hour on the phone. And when they finish the lectures, spend another hour on the phone. And there aren't any tests per se in that course because it's that discussion, that one-on-one discussion I have with people that really helps them clear up things for themselves and helps me get, get, get an idea of whether these, these folks are actually learning their stuff. And I think, that's a, I think that's a great idea because there's a lot of people who want to be in, you know, on investigation teams and they want to go do this. And, you know, there's waiting lists. Uh, at least from the the groups that I'm familiar with, like they have a they have a certain number of people, and there's always waiting lists uh, for people that want to get in and they want to go along. and And so, if you want to interested in starting your investigative team or jumping up on the list by having some kind of you know knowledge and c- correct expectations and things like that, I think these online classes. I mean, I would have I would have killed for these 20 years ago. You know, I'm, I'm the first guy like, yeah, put me. You know, I'm going online tonight. And so mm-hmm. I think that's a that's a really great opportunity um, that people who are interested in investigations should uh, definitely check out. And where where can we find you? Uh, what's your website again where everybody can find information on that for you? Uh, it's mindreader.com. And just just start looking through the tabs and you'll see one uh, one category that says parapsychological studies that talks about the classes. Fantastic. So uh, we're going to link to that in the show notes. And uh, I got about a million questions uh, I could ask you again, uh, Lloyd, but I just want to thank you very much for spending a little bit of time with us and, uh, you know, letting our listeners know about, you know, a little bit of the history of, um, you know, parapsychology and, and everything the way it's going. So thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Sure. Uh, let me mention one other thing. Please um, do. Please do. Yeah, there's a conference coming up called Breakthroughs Towards a Future of Consciousness which is happening in Virginia Beach at the Association for Research and Enlightenment, the Edgar Casey organization. And uh, I'll be speaking there. It's at the end of March. Uh, Edgar Mitchell, the Apollo 14 astronaut. Speaking. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm speaking on how pop culture has influenced our ideas of consciousness. Okay, so, so that's about perfect. Yeah. So if you go to edgarcasey.org, so it's uh, Edgar, C-A-Y-C-E.org. Uh, you will find information in their conference, their events category. You'll find information on that conference. If people are interested, it's the end of March in Virginia Beach. Very cool. And we'll have links to that in the show notes and then links to uh, the various books and, and his websites. And uh, thank you again, Lloyd. And we hope you have a good one. And just thanks for spending time with us today. Thanks, Mike. All right. See you. 
Well, what an interview that was, Mike. Nice job. Thank you. I appreciate that. Lloyd, I find him inspirational. And it was a real pleasure talking to someone who I've considered um, a role model for a long time. For sure. Very inspirational and very interesting. Great topic. I, I enjoyed it. So thanks for the nice job you did on that. And what's our song about today? Okay. Well, uh, today's song is called uh, Pascal's Wager. Ooh. Now, if you know anything about computers, there's a uh, program. there was a programming language called Pascal. And uh, Blaze Pascal was uh, a logician... Um, and a lot of what he worked on eventually led to modern computing and stuff like that. But like a lot of people in the um, you know 17th and 18th centuries and everything, like Newton, he also had a spiritual side. So some of the things that he wrote about were how to uh, reconcile your faith with science. And I think that's a little bit of kind of the, the discussion we had with Lloyd today kind of brought that up. So Pascal's wager is, um, if you're going to make a bet... You might as well bet on believing in God because if you believe and it's true, then you get something like then you get to go to heaven uh-huh. and that's great. Okay. Um, and if you believe and it's not true, then it doesn't really matter because you're just going right. to die anyway. Okay. Interesting. All so right. Pascal's wager is that bet, and that's the name of the song. All right, let's hear it. We are but tiny. Inside a world of infinity All we have is our reason To make us better than the beast Haskell was a gambler Who wanted to believe Haskell made a wager On the souls of you and me And if you
Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side.